If you struggle with weight gain and low energy, a low-carbohydrate diet may help to boost your metabolism. Today, it even may be suggested that low-carb diets could even treat metabolic conditions like type 1 and type 2 diabetes. While dietary recommendations have leaned to higher carbohydrate intake to reduce risk of disease, a new swathe of evidence is suggesting the opposite. Low-carbohydrate diets now have a large evidence base to suggest they can not only be prevented, but also could be potentially used as a therapeutic treatment for certain conditions. Today, my guest is Dr. Jessica Turton, a practicing dietitian with postgraduate qualifications in nutrition and dietetics and a full member of the Dietitians Association of Australia. She successfully completed her master's in nutrition and dietetics at the Sydney University, and her master's project was conducted as a systemic review of all low-carbohydrate diets in the management of type 1 diabetes. She's also published an evidence-based approach to developing low-carb diets for type 2 diabetes. It's a very interesting conversation about the applications of low-carb diets, and I highly recommend this episode with Dr. Jessica Turton. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. I've got a very special guest, Dr. Jessica Turton, to discuss how dietary changes can affect both chronic disease, but also the moving landscape of low-carbohydrate diets and the evidence base behind how we can think about this in terms of reversing certain conditions. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, we, we've been talking about this for a while, uh, back when you know I think you were in the process of publishing your PhD, and now um, we're excited to kind of have your um, the results on that. But you've been talking about this for some time and treating patients as a dietitian um, in terms of how they can control their carbohydrate intake. I thought we'd start off by maybe taking back people back a little bit to you know how you first started to think about this kind of therapy for for patients and what kind of opened your mind to this whole space. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been quite a long time now that I've sort of known about low carb or I've been doing my own research into low carb. Before I even um, started my own master's uh, degree to become a dietitian, I had a couple of my own health issues and people in my family did as well. Um, so it started with me. I, I had some issues with my my weight and I was struggling a little bit, well, a lot <laughs> with a binge eating disorder when I was growing up through high school. And I was sort of looking for, I mean, at that time when I was growing up, really all I knew was about calories. I was an expert calorie counter. And as I was sort of getting into or just before I was getting into university to become a dietitian, I was trying to research other methods, I suppose, to help my own relationship with food, my own mental health and my own physical health. Because at this point, even though I knew I wanted to be a dietitian and I knew this was a passion of mine, I didn't know how to eat for myself and my own health. I was really stuck. I was confused. I was overweight and I was in a bit of a dark place mentally. When I started my bachelor degree, it was actually in exercise and sports science. So there was no, or very little, I should say, nutrition component in the bachelor degree. I was still trying to like soak up the answers, I suppose, from my lecturers and, and do my own research online. And around that sort of time as well, my dad actually had a heart attack and he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And so that in itself kind of like propelled me to really figure out, okay, I need to know what the answers are for myself, for my dad, and I need to know what is the solution here. And so one of my lecturers at university, his name is Professor Kieran Rooney. He was actually also my PhD supervisor. So this is before I actually knew him. He did give us some information, really basic exercise biochemistry about insulin and its role in fuel utilization. And he was telling us that when insulin levels are high, essentially, you know, fat oxidation stops. And when insulin levels are low, your body can burn fat. 
And this was just like all I needed to hear because up until this point, it had all been about calories for me. And I was trying to figure out how do I formulate, you know, the best low calorie diet so I can lose weight and my dad's health can improve. But now suddenly it was about hormones and it was about how you can actually teach your body to use a different fuel source. And I knew this was going to be good for my dad who had diabetes now. And I knew this was going to be good for me who wanted to lose weight. So that's when I learned about low carbohydrate diets initially. And we didn't really hear much about it at uni for the next seven years, to be honest. So I had to do my own research. I, you know, started looking into podcasts, read a lot of books. And by the time I did start my master's degree, I was fully on board with low carb. I was doing it. My dad was doing it. Our health had improved significantly. And I guess that led to me questioning a lot of things at university because when I was in my master's degree, I came into that degree with all of this knowledge around low carbohydrate diets, which at university, you kind of learn to be a fad diet. So I learned very early on how to, I guess, tackle that from a scientific perspective. And I always knew I was going to do a PhD because I didn't want to be labeled as a quack, you know, or someone who didn't know what they were talking about. I wanted to make sure that with everything that I did and taught to my patients when I did become a practicing dietitian, there was solid science behind it. So after my master's, I delved into a PhD. It's interesting to hear the backstory, you know, both personal, but then also to your experience in how, you know, what you learned in terms of what we're talked about, you know, dietary input and, you know, energy balance, weight gain and so forth. It's an interesting balance between what we know about obviously calories from food, which is, you know, a, a valid kind of input to what, um, you know, the what outcomes we do, health outcomes we have with um, our dietary input. I wonder if you can, as a, as a dietitian, can kind of paint a little bit of the picture that you, that you were taught about calories in terms of what that perception is um, in terms of, let's, let's think about this straight calorie in, calorie out um, equation and how you know, we are maybe more conventionally taught that it's just about calories and then you know, how this is kind of how we have to kind of think more about hormones. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you mean. And it was, um, unfortunately at university, like they don't really go into it much as a concept, the whole calories in, calories out. I kind of wish they did because then I feel like it would become undone <laughs> a little bit easier. But, you know, they, there's a lot of things in nutrition and dietetics that they teach you as if you should just accept. And when you sort of question like the guidelines or what we know to be true, like if you want to lose weight, you've got to eat less calories than you consume. Or if you, you know, want to improve your heart health, you've got to eat less fat. A lot of these things don't have much scientific weight to them or even that much logic. But, you know, when you hear about them, even at a university level, they don't delve into why they're telling you these things. They tell you these things and you're supposed to accept it. And I struggled with that a lot because, as I said, I already went in knowing, well, hang on a second, it's not the only way to lose weight and maybe not the most effective way. And especially for type 2 diabetes, low-carbohydrate diets, from what I can see, are like the most effective dietary intervention. So why aren't we hearing about this? And so I used to ask a lot of questions and I guess, you know, want to speak to the lecturers after and find out more about exactly what you're saying. What is the science behind this calories in, calories out? Why are we learning about this? And, you know, why can't we talk about low-carbohydrate diets? And I used to print out studies and take them to my lecturers and it was not well received. So I didn't get a lot of encouragement from lecturers at university to really discuss the science, which is so unfortunate because this is a science degree, nutrition and dietetics. Um, you have to do a lot of you know, chemistry and physiology and biochemistry to get into this course. But once you're in the course, it's like, okay, here are the recommendations. This is what you regurgitate to patients. And you do learn a lot about specific medical conditions, but then when it comes to what you tell the patient, there is a huge disconnect. 
And so what I find and now what I do as a practicing dietitian is really just look at, okay, this is the medical condition. And then I delve into the research rather than looking at clinical practice guidelines or even Australian dietary guidelines. If you go straight to the research, you find a lot more answers. But I think the reason that a lot of dietitians don't do that is they don't have the skills to be able to look through research studies and come up with dietary plans that might actually be different to the guidelines. So unfortunately, yeah, we didn't really dive into the science much, but it, there's not a lot of science behind the calories in, calories out theory. It's also very difficult to, you know, paint a physiological picture behind what food is doing because it's very complex as we're learning as well, right? That, you know, all of the inputs from food, all of the different nutrients, all of the sourcing and everything has a, you know, a vast effect on the body. So it, it paints a very kind of complex picture as to how food affects our body and you know maybe the the calorie in calorie out um kind of picture has simplified it in our minds to to some to some extent just before we go into you know obviously at the the deeper dive into how hormones and and um certain conditions are affected um you know by by our food like how would you explain a a calorie and the 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 input of a daily caloric intake from a from a a perspective of someone say trying to lose weight um and what they may be advised by their dietitian Mm. well calories are simply a unit of energy in food specifically um so i guess what dietitians will teach patients is you've got a certain number of calories coming in through your diet and then there's a certain amount of calories that you're expending or energy that you're expending i should say and in order to lose weight it's a simple maths equation <laughs> you need the calories coming in to be less than the calories that are going out and so people are taught to essentially just look at food as calories, as if all different types of food is the same, and learn how to eat less. So restrict their portions, perhaps eat less frequently, and choose foods that tend to be very low in calories to fill them up. And these would be foods that are low in fat, a lot of animal-based products as well. And so it's sort of like explained as a very simple math equation, really. And this is how I learned about it when I was going through high school. And at that time, because I had no other nutrition knowledge, I was like, okay, that makes sense. I can do that. You know, I started counting all my calories, weighing all my food, started restricting my portions, and I did lose weight. I lost a lot of weight. And you can lose weight on very low calorie diets. That's the thing. I'm not saying that they don't work for weight loss. But the problem with low-calorie diets is there's so many side effects that come along with it. And I think the main one that you speak about a lot, I speak about a lot, is the lack of essential nutrients. When you start cutting back on fat, cutting back on animal products, cutting back on calories, you're not getting enough essential nutrients, especially fat-soluble nutrients like vitamins A, D, E, and K. And that can lead to a lot of health issues if the diet is sustained for a long time. But the other thing that, you know, I'm a big advocate of is the importance of energy itself. So a lot of people think about calories as something they don't need. They think about calories as like a bad thing. You know, if I'm overweight, I clearly I'm eating too much calories and therefore I need less. But in fact, I see for a lot of patients, it's actually the other way around you know, they're already under eating calories and energy because of this toxic dieting culture that we have. And their energy levels have been suppressed so much as a result. And then their vital organ systems like their brain and their gut are not getting enough energy because their metabolic rate has, I guess, suppressed so much. And they're still battling this weight issue. And then also their quality of life and their physical health has declined. So it works for weight loss, but there's a lot of problems with it. Would you say that the idea of reducing calories was somewhat driving the maybe the you know one of the the bigger rationales between why we went to a low fat diet because of the calories in fat? Is that one of the reasons why low fat became more um, you know maybe more recommended in these kind of spaces for for weight loss and so forth? Yeah, I think for weight loss, it's a big part of it. A lot of my patients 
even after getting dietary education from myself or my team or someone else like yourself online, they still have that little voice in the back of their head that's like fat is going to make you fat. And where that came from is the fact that fat per gram has the most amount of calories. So again, coming back to this idea of calories and not even thinking about hormones or blood sugar or or vitamins or anything else. From a heart disease perspective, I think there was some different science that really drove why we should be following a low-fat diet for heart disease. But for weight loss, yes, it really is all about calories. I mean, every time you look at a standard you know, research paper on a low-calorie diet or you look at a website where they're promising a weight loss program due to a low-calorie intake, they're always explaining that very simple rationale that if you eat less calories than you expend, you will lose weight, as if it is so simple, you know, but the body isn't a machine. The body doesn't really work like that. So it's, it's not that simple. Um, and I think that from a hormone perspective, things work very, very differently. So that's why low-carbohydrate diets are really useful. And I think of them more like a therapeutic diet because they're addressing someone's physiology. We're kind of painting the picture that there's been some confusing um, maybe dialogue or education out there about what to eat. You know, we talked about low fat, um, you know, maybe calories, calories in, calories out. How do you generally see the presentation of a patient that has come to you that is has tried to change their diet but what are people experiencing now in terms of how their their food is affecting them what what conditions are you seeing quite commonly in your clinic yeah well probably the biggest thing it's always going to be weight loss for, for most people I would say you know even if they are coming in for a different reason like they've got some gut issues or their energy levels are low it's like oh yeah and I want to lose weight you know every second most people want to lose weight I would say more than every second person so that's a big thing we have to know how to deal with but I would say that a lot of people are just kind of making it through life, like just getting through the day. You know, they've got brain fog, low energy levels, digestive issues. We see a lot of IBS, um, so like constipation, diarrhea, bloating, gas, etc. We've got a lot of people who have sarcopenia or low muscle mass, a lot of people, very young people with osteoporosis, and they're conditions that have just been thrown around to them, like, hey, you've got osteoporosis or hey, you've got hypothyroid or, hey, you've got like autoimmune arthritis or whatever it is. And they get given this label and just told, you know, they have to live with it. And unfortunately, it does really wear away at their quality of life. And it does a lot of the times these diagnoses just help, sorry, lead people to feeling, you know, really helpless. Um, So there isn't really like one condition we specialize in because I think all conditions really overlap. But I find what eats away at people the most is those day-to-day signs and symptoms. Like we can be diagnosed with a specific condition, but that doesn't mean we have to put up with, you know, the low energy, the restless nights, the pain, the inflammation. We can learn to improve the way our body responds and the way we manage certain conditions, even if they aren't reversible, so that we can improve our day-to-day well-being. You mentioned a few conditions there that perhaps, you know, that that they've received from their doctor and maybe they've felt, you know, somewhat, um, somewhat lost as to how to kind of, you know, go through next steps. You know, maybe they've received some kind of medication or prescription to say that they they need to be on this, you know, because of a certain condition. Uh, Would you say that they've received some kind of dietary um, guidance from, from a professional when they, when they come to you or or are they coming solely to you for this guidance? It really depends. Sometimes we get people who have had, um, you know, issues for decades and never even thought to see a dietitian or perhaps have seen someone once before and didn't find it very effective um, and then kind of like lost hope, I suppose, with regards to diet. And then, you know, something will prop up for them in the future, whether it's a new specialist that's recommended us specifically or a dietitian, or they found something online that's led them to us. Um, and then you'll have other people that have, you know, 
I guess, you know, are lucky enough to have the information. I think we have a lot more information now. So definitely younger people who receive a diagnosis and then straight away want to find the answers. So they'll kind of make it to us shortly after a diagnosis. But what I find is a big issue is a lot of the times people aren't, they might be told, yeah, go and see a dietitian, but they aren't necessarily told how diet can improve the management of their condition. So that's really something that we would do. So I still think, you know, there's a lot of people out there who could benefit from improving their diet that don't even know diet could support their condition. And so that's a big education piece that we take on in our consults. But people have to know that diet plays a role to get to us in the first place. So I think, you know, podcasts like this or, you know, conferences or programs online that really show people the role of diet in different health conditions are super important. Absolutely. And it's interesting you brought up osteoporosis because I've noticed the same trend is that there's this big trend in younger people being diagnosed with osteoporosis. And this to me is terrifying because it's something that relates very closely to what we see in the mouth with dental disease and the loss of minerals in teeth and in the gums and bones. And there really is not a lot of um, you know, information in terms of you know, how we manage this besides going on to um, certain medications to manage the bone metabolism, which is, to me, I, I, especially in younger people, I, I, I wouldn't like to see people just given that, um, you know, that kind of option. And it, it really, when I see a patient like that, it just, I, I'm thinking that there is a long-term, you know, malnutrition happens here because the, 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 the skeletal system is not, um, you know, supporting itself. And we see the same thing earlier potentially in the mouth, but it's just a really concerning trend that I'm glad you brought up. Um, with these kind of patients, and, you know, obviously we'll go into um, more metabolic conditions after, but I thought we'd go into this first because it relates to dental. How, how would you kind of explain to a patient then how their diet is going to relate to their bone density? How would you go about that conversation? Yeah, I guess there's many different angles you can come at it from, but I think firstly, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's absolutely shocking that most people who are given a diagnosis of osteoporosis are just told, take this medication, take this calcium supplement, and you'll be on your way. I've actually even heard of a patient who was told not to breastfeed because then she'll leach too much calcium, but never told that maybe changing her diet could do something, right? So this poor woman felt as if she couldn't breastfeed her baby because of this diagnosis and wasn't given any other options. And so I think we definitely come at this from, from the wrong way. And there's so many places that diet can play a role in improving bone density. But I think, you know, one of the main things to just go through with people initially is what makes up our bone? Because I think if you ask most people what makes up your bone, most people will probably just say calcium and just kind of leave it there. So that's why they think, well, if I'm getting my calcium supplement or I'm eating, you know, some calcium or calcium fortified foods, then tick, I must be doing everything I can. But there are lots of different minerals in your bone. It's not just calcium. And I think one of the main ones that people underconsume, particularly because of previous advice they've heard in the past, is sodium. So sodium is a very important mineral in our bone, in our teeth, that a lot of people are restricting because of population level advice to eat less salt, you know, to reduce your risk of heart disease. And salt leaches, sodium, sorry, I should say, leaches from the bone and takes other minerals out with it. So we've got these minerals in the bone, but if your body needs those minerals, if you're not getting enough through the diet, they will come out of the bone to support your other organ systems. So we need to think about the minerals, sodium, calcium, magnesium, I would say are the main three to really think about bumping up. And they're the three most people are lacking. So it's certainly not all about calcium, but that is important, of course. We also need to think about how those minerals are getting in the bone because we don't just eat the minerals and then they magically go in the bone. We need fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin D and vitamin K2 to get the minerals in the bone. So then we need to talk about those sorts of foods that contain those fat-soluble nutrients. And again, we're coming to foods that people shy away from and are afraid of because of that population level advice to 
eat less fat or eat less animal products for heart disease or weight management. So that's things like eggs and red meat and chicken with the skin on, you know, and, and fish with the skin on and dairy as well, like full fat dairy. These are foods that people are very afraid of and people who have been restricting, but these are the best sources of vitamin D and vitamin K2 in the diet. But then, of course, one thing that we often forget and often gets overlooked in terms of what makes up our bone is simply protein. So a lot of people are not eating enough protein and a lot of people have inflammatory conditions or are under quite a lot of stress, which means that protein requirements increase significantly. So they might know that protein is important, but they might not be getting enough. So eating plenty of protein and also the right types of bioavailable protein, again, which tend to come from animal foods, are really important for the bone. So not just strengthening the bone, but maintaining the strength of the bone over time. And of course, supporting lean tissue, which then supports the bone as well. So it is upsetting when people aren't taught how they can improve their bone density, because I think there's so many things that could be done. And it's something that, you know, most people should be mindful of, you know, like supporting your bone density should be, you know, a lifelong, um, you know, maybe goal that most people have. In, if you can have your daily habits that are supporting this, you know, having strong teeth and bones is an investment into your, into your later life, right? So it's, it's interesting that we, we haven't, um, you know, better educated people as to how to think about this. It, you know, you bring up minerals, which is really, um, you know, I think people, don't consider this very well that you know obviously there's calcium and they might take a calcium supplement but also yeah the support minerals such as um, magnesium which is just you know very very commonly deficient in a lot of people they show a lot of symptoms for magnesium deficiency um, alongside um, you know certain other minerals and so forth but the um, the, the other thing that people do um, that they they forget too is that uh, minerals like sodium and so forth are involved in cellular um cellular function and muscle function so it's it, this is the your body's everyday function that you're affected by not having enough of these um the, these factors in your diet and it's interesting that you know the bones will be depleted in these um in these minerals but it's from long-term deficiency from things just like muscle function that we, we've been lacking these nutrients protein that that's it's an, it's an interesting point with protein that obviously we need protein to integrate into bone can you explain to people bioavailable protein and the different types of protein that they may should be thinking about in terms of their dietary intake? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with protein, it's it's not all protein created equal. I guess there's different types of protein, as you're alluding to. Some are better absorbed and used by the body than others. So protein is basically just like a set of amino acids and we have certain amino acids that are essential and certain that are non-essential. So generally when we talk about bioavailable proteins, there's sort of two parts to that. It's how well your body can absorb the protein from that specific food and then whether or not that food contains the essential amino acids. So the most common way of categorizing protein is looking at animal-based protein and plant-based protein. Because, you know, sometimes when we talk to patients and we say, okay, well, what food do you think has protein? They're like broccoli and nuts and legumes. And they're not wrong. Like those foods do have some protein in there, but they're not bioavailable sources of protein. So not only is there less protein per gram in those foods, but the protein isn't as well absorbed and there's also not the full set of essential amino acids. So they certainly can contribute to protein in the diet for sure. Um, but we also want to be thinking about animal protein, which generally has your full set of essential amino acids. And also animal protein is much better absorbed in the gastrointestinal tract. Our gut is essentially designed to break down foods that are low in fiber and extract micronutrients and amino acids from these types of foods. 
And so when we have plant-based proteins, they tend to have a lot of fiber and anti-nutrients and other things that our gut doesn't do so well with. Um, other animal species do great with other forms of protein, plant-based protein, but our gut specifically doesn't. So this is why when we see patients who have osteoporosis or sarcopenia or metabolic issues related to low muscle mass who need to eat more protein, we're specifically encouraging them to, you know, if they're open to it, eat more animal-based protein because that's going to be more effective. You certainly can still be very healthy eating plant-based protein, but you do have to eat a lot more of it. And then you have to make sure you're pairing your proteins in the right way to get all those essential amino acids. Have you seen a trend uh, of people, you know, maybe being um, more plant-based or maybe vegetarian? I feel like probably, you know, maybe 10 to 20 years ago, there were more people on vegetarian diets and there's been a little bit more of a propensity for um, completely plant-based diets in the last maybe five to 10 years. Have you seen, um, you know, a, a you know, an effect of this and, you know, how, how do you manage that in, in your clinic? Yeah, I think where we see it the most is at our, um, at the Center for Gastrointestinal Health. So one of the partner clinics that we work at, because that clinic, you're getting a lot of people who are coming to the clinic for these non-specific gut issues. So essentially IBS, they've got some kind of debilitating or multiple debilitating gut symptoms that are extremely uncomfortable. And generally what happens in those situations is they get scopes to see whether or not there's any medical component that might be contributing to those issues. And a lot of the times there isn't. So there's there's nothing medically going on. And so then they come to us and we start looking at their diet and if there's someone who's on a plant-based diet, the amount of fiber that they're putting into their gut is, is extremely high. Um, and in order for them to get their protein in and get their different nutrients and even to reach satiety, they're having to eat so much food, which means so much fiber. And for a lot of these people, their gut simply can't tolerate it. And so a lot of these gut symptoms, as much as they sound like you know, normal things that a lot of people experience like reflux, bloating, constipation, diarrhea. For some people, these symptoms are extremely debilitating. A lot of people won't leave the house or go to certain social events or they're in so much pain because of their gut issues. And so I think once you explain to people how our digestive system works and also explain that different people have different tolerance thresholds, I suppose, for not only fibers, but other types of carbohydrates and specific foods, including processed foods, then people kind of understand, you know, that they do need to make changes. And sometimes we can rejig a plant-based diet to help with IBS, but sometimes we need to actually bring in some animal foods because otherwise it is hard to meet protein requirements. And look, a lot of people are open to doing that because, you know, once they understand, okay, this isn't actually working for me from a health perspective, they are open to bringing in some animal-based protein foods. It's interesting, you know, the idea that fiber um, intake, you know, could maybe be causing some kind of, you know, digestive distress or digestive long-term digestive condition is something that might not be as well known by the wider public, would you say? What, what would you, how would you explain this in terms of, because we're told that, you know, we need to eat fiber for, you know, good gut health and, and, and good general health. How do you explain that to a patient that has, you know, maybe run into a, a digestive condition because of fiber intake? Yeah, you're right. I often say it without remembering that most people think fiber is good for your gut. So when people hear that, they're like, wait, hang on a second. This is completely opposite to everything I've learned before, which is how it goes with nutrition. I think we've got these this standard set of population level advice, you know, high carb, low fat, lots of whole grains, lots of plants, not a lot of animal foods. This is kind of the message that everybody gets 
But what we need to understand is that we are all unique individuals and we all need a different type of diet in most situations, right? So a lot of the times that population level advice does not apply to us. So that's the first thing I think we need to kind of acknowledge. It's not as if we should all be eating one way. But in terms of fiber itself, the way that I explain it to patients, fiber is essentially an indigestible carbohydrate. And it's something that's essentially just going to like move through your gut undigested. But what your gut does attempt to do is ferment this indigestible carbohydrate and turn it into an energy source. I mean, human beings are energy dependent. The whole reason we eat is to get energy. So eating something that's an indigestible form of energy doesn't make a lot of sense. So your body kind of tries to ferment it and tries to get some energy from that. Sometimes the fermentation process itself is what leads to the uncomfortable gut issues. And also sometimes when people don't have a very good capacity to ferment, that's what leads to the uncomfortable gut issues because now you're getting fiber just passing through the gastrointestinal tract completely undigested. So for a lot of people that makes sense and it's not to say that fiber is bad but we as humans have a capacity to tolerate it and I would say that most individuals have a slightly different threshold I've certainly met some people that can't tolerate any fiber at all they really don't do well with plant foods and then I've met some people that do extremely well with a high fiber diet and then we've got other people sitting in the middle so yes it is individual but generally speaking humans due to our digestive tract and our sort of small large colons we don't do well with breaking down fiber yeah it's obviously everyone's individual but it's interesting to kind of start to to um for people to consider that maybe you know that they they could consider reducing their fiber which is something that you know I, i wouldn't have considered you know you know, 10, 15 years ago in terms of health. But when we're thinking about the digestive system, as you say, it really is designed to extract core nutrients like fat-soluble vitamins. And these kind of um, foods, you know, they, they take up a lot of time and energy that, uh, you know, that, that isn't really getting to some of those nutrients that the body really needs. So it's an interesting flip of, um, flip of ideas, isn't it, that I, I think sometimes patients need to be kind of led down a little bit. Um, but each everyone's individual in that sense. The, there's a, a few concepts like this, I feel, that were, were taught to um, me in, in dental and what we received in medical training. I remember, for instance, the, um, the description of type 2 diabetes is, was explained as a, it was a very rudimental um, way of describing the condition in that you have this increase in um in blood sugars with with very little description on that but then also this response from the body to have insulin resistance and so when a, a patient is insulin resistant there is a set of medications that you can give them and then this this helps this condition now at the time it didn't make a lot of sense but i didn't question it very much but since then the idea of type 2 diabetes being a, a purely um medication based um condition it it doesn't make a lot of sense when we start to think about the body and and it's it's dietarily inputs now you did a master's on this didn't you in terms of a, the a, a, um a, an evidence review on what were the um some of the interventions for type 2 diabetes can you take us through some of that that research um process that you went through to and what you found yeah definitely um, and you're right, it's it's taught to be this chronic progressive disease that medications simply just slow down or delay that progression, and that's pretty much all you can do. Unfortunately, that's the way it's taught, but it's actually really a, a dietary issue, and there's a lot of dietary interventions that have been shown to improve type 2 diabetes or even put it in remission. But when I was in my master's degree for nutrition and dietetics, we had a six-month research project at the end of the degree, and we could either jump on a research project that was already going or come up with our own. And so, of course, I chose to come up with my own. And I wanted to do a um, systematic review looking at low-carb diets for type 2 diabetes. But when we started looking at what was already out there, as I said earlier, 
it's as clear as day in the literature. All you have to do is just like search uh, scientific articles, low carb diets, type two diabetes. And there are so many articles that pop up and not just so many articles, but multiple systematic reviews. So systematic reviews collate all the different articles out there and kind of summarize them, I suppose. So because that was already quite clear in the literature, I actually decided to do a different clinical population, a similar but different population, which was type 1 diabetes. So that's what I did for my master's and I went on to do a PhD. But as part of my PhD for that, we actually used a lot of the literature in type 2 diabetes to support the evidence base for type 1 because unlike type 2, type 1 had almost zero research, which is crazy because, you know, type 1 diabetes, the condition is so heavily dependent on carbohydrate intake, yet no one was studying what is the optimal level of carb intake for this clinical population. So as a means of pulling together more evidence for type 1, we actually did go back and look at the research for type 2 again. But instead of doing a study that was saying, um, or a systematic review, I should say, that was saying is low-carb effective for type 2 as an intervention, we actually just accepted that it was effective because we had all of this literature out there that we cited. And then we started diving into the methods of these studies. So rather than looking at the results, we looked at the methods. And the methods were really, really interesting because when you look at how these low-carb studies were formulated, you can see that none of these or very little of these studies were calorie restricted. So most of the time people were taught to eat to satiety of recommended foods. The recommended foods were extremely high in protein and fat and most of the diets were predominantly based on animal foods. And so we saw this huge disconnect between what we're told to eat now as like your standard population advice and what most people with type 2 diabetes are taught to eat, which is lots of grains, low fat, you know, calorie restrict to lose weight. There was a huge disconnect between the guidelines and what we were seeing in these studies. And a lot of these studies were putting type 2 diabetes into remission. So there was 41 studies that we found at the time and most of those were achieving type 2 diabetes remission, which meant the HbA1c was coming down to less than 6.5 without glucose-lowering medications, which is interesting to what you were talking about because most of the time in medicine, people are taught that they need these medications to slow down the progression of type 2 diabetes. And in fact, with the right dietary intervention, which appears to be a low-carbohydrate diet, these medications may not be necessary. So again, we sort of already knew what the results were, but I think by diving into the methods, what we were trying to achieve there is really sort of break down those specific barriers where people, as we were saying before, are almost brainwashed to think, I can't have fat, can't eat too many calories, I can't eat too much meat, I can't eat eggs, you know, I can't eat cheese. But actually when we look at these studies, it was the complete opposite. And I think what's really, really interesting, and you probably already know this, but if you look at medical textbooks, before they discovered glucose-lowering medications, it is exactly the diet that was promoted, a high animal-based diet with little to no carbohydrates. And all people with diabetes were put on these diets, and they did really well. And in these medical textbooks, they actually described diabetes as a condition that was easy to treat. <laughs> Whereas now we've got thousands of medications and it's a worldwide epidemic. And you speak about doctors actually that trained um, even in the 80s. Um, you know, they were barely even um, taught about type 2 diabetes and they came out into these clinics and they were just flooded with these patients that were that were presenting with insulin resistance. And um, it, it was something that really has exploded in the last couple of decades. So it's, I think it's important to kind of paint that picture for people that this isn't a normal um, presentation of health, that the people are becoming insulin resistant in that sense. Um, there's, there's actually, I, I thought we'd just quickly explain and go into the, the hormone insulin. And this question from Fee Cunningham actually asked that. Can you explain um, what is insulin resistance in layman's term? And how we improve it? I think to understand insulin resistance, you have to understand the role of insulin. And this is 
what I learned very simply way back at the beginning that kind of opened my eyes to the role of low-carb diets. So it's a, a good question because I think if people can understand this, then a lot of things around what they should eat become clearer. So insulin is a hormone that our pancreas produces. It's a very important hormone. We need insulin for lots of different things. One of its main roles is to control blood sugar. So the sugar in our blood should be kept relatively constant. We have around one teaspoon of sugar in our entire bloodstream, and that's really important for our brain function, our heart function, and so on. And so when we eat certain foods and our blood sugar levels rise, our pancreas release insulin to bring the blood sugars down. So the body kind of comes back to that homeostasis and the sugar goes into our cells, whether it's our fat cells or our muscle cells or our brain cells. It's either going to get used for energy or stored as fat, depending on what our body needs at the time. Now, Insulin resistance is when your body isn't quite listening to that signal so well. So the blood sugars rise, the pancreas releases the insulin, but because of the resistance, the blood sugars don't necessarily come down as effectively. So the body can react in different ways when it comes to insulin resistance. For a lot of people, the pancreas just pumps out more and more insulin. So blood sugars can stay very normal for a very long time. And this is why when we go to our doctor and we get our blood sugar level tested and it comes back perfect, normal, that doesn't mean we don't have insulin resistance. Our pancreas could be working very hard in the background to pump out all this extra insulin to keep our blood sugars nice and stable. At some point, our pancreas is going to get to a position where it can't keep producing more insulin. We've kind of hit our max insulin production capacity. And that's when blood sugars start to rise. So that's when now the blood sugars rise. There's not enough insulin to bring the blood sugar back down. So it goes too high for too long. And that is quite literally the definition of diabetes, when blood sugars cannot be effectively controlled. So I usually say to patients, we're kind of like all on this spectrum from very insulin sensitive to very insulin resistant. Some people are kind of gradually moving up that scale each year. They're becoming more and more insulin resistant, but some people can actually stop that process and even walk backwards the other way and become more insulin sensitive. In order to become more insulin sensitive, we have to get the body producing less insulin. The less insulin that is around, the more sensitive we become. Like, you know, it's a, it's a hormone, so it sort of works in that way. And so this is why low-carb diets are really effective for type 2 diabetes or people trying to prevent diabetes and improve insulin sensitivity because the less carbohydrates you eat, the less of those blood sugar spikes you get, the less insulin your body has to make and the more sensitive you become. There are a lot of other ways to improve insulin sensitivity, but that is one strategy. I might just bring this up quick because this gets brought up a little bit and I think people might get a little bit confused. Michael asks, what's the relationship between insulin resistance and A1C levels in the blood? Well, that's kind of what I was saying. When the insulin resistance gets so severe that the body can no longer control blood sugars, HbA1c is sort of a reflection of your blood sugars over about three months, but not exactly. It's how much glucose is stuck to your red blood cells and they tend to live for about three months. So insulin resistance will worsen and worsen and worsen while those HbA1c levels are normal. So that could happen for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And then once that insulin resistance gets so severe, as I said, the body just can't keep pumping out more insulin, that's when the A1C starts to rise. So our A1C should be somewhere between about 4.5 and 5.5, around that five mark is normal. But then once we see it start to increase beyond that, especially as it gets closer to 6, 6.5 and above, that's where we're really seeing diabetic levels. So hopefully we want to try and prevent that from occurring. When you describe the mechanisms and you, and you just talk straight about type 2 diabetes, it, it seems very simple, doesn't it? It's that the long-term rise of blood sugars um, and the, the body's response to this and its inability to, to keep doing the same thing really is 
you know, would explain why there were dietary um, approaches to reduce this condition because it's so simple in terms of, hey, your body's got too much blood sugar here. It's managing this with a hormone and then the hormone is starting to fail, like the responses to the hormone is starting to fail. So it's interesting to put that all together in terms of, one, the history that low-carb diets were used for type 2 diabetes uh, quite commonly uh, in the not-too-distant past, but then also to the mechanisms that make complete sense. So I think for, um, it's you're doing a very good service to your patients to explain this in a way that is, um, you know, th- that is so simple. But probably something that's a little bit more complex that you went into your PhD paper with is the application of low-carb diets for type 1 diabetes. And this was probably a little bit, um, a little bit, as you said, less researched. And so why don't you explain, you, you told us a little bit about your process about getting into type 1 diabetes, but explain how, um, you know, this kind of uh, research paper came to you and, and what, what happened in, in the process. Yeah. Yeah. So it started off with um, that master's project where I wanted to do a systematic review And we did end up, even though we saw very little research in type 1, we still went ahead with the systematic review because my supervisor was basically saying, well, no one's asked this question. Let's be the first to ask it, even if it means there's no research that we find at least we're highlighting the fact that there's no research in this specific area and that is a problem and we need to start doing research. So that's pretty much what we did. We we did a search to see are there any studies looking at low-carbohydrate diets for type 1 diabetes management? And I think one of the reasons that this is not well studied is because people don't understand type 1 diabetes. Like, I mean, type 2 diabetes is very, very common and (laughs) most people still don't understand that, but at least they sort of accept, okay, this is our treatment method, right? And maybe that treatment method is is wrong, but we have a method. When it comes to type 1 diabetes, I think a lot of healthcare practitioners have no idea what to do. I'm even aware of healthcare practitioners that can't accept patients with type 1 because they don't know how to help them, which is an awful situation to be in if you have type 1 diabetes. Um, So... The other thing is when it comes to diet, it's sort of more so ingrained into people with type 1 than anybody else that carbohydrates are essential and eating enough carbohydrates at every single meal is important. Otherwise, you could quite literally die, right? So it's very dramatic. And this is the story that people with type 1 have been told. And the reason for that is people with type 1 cannot produce insulin or not enough insulin anyway. So their pancreas can't make that insulin. So when their blood sugar levels rise, they're not going to come down and they can rise to very, very dangerous or fatal levels. And so as a therapy, we have produced um, injections of insulin, which is absolutely life-saving to people with type 1, so that people with type 1 diabetes can inject insulin exogenously to bring those blood sugars down. And that sounds like a, you know, a good solution. But the problem is it's so hard to play the role of your pancreas. So it is hard to figure out exactly how much insulin you need to bring your blood sugar levels down. And if you put in too much insulin, you can bring your blood sugar levels down to a very dangerously low level, which again can also be fatal. So the way that we sort of Uh, the standard management, I should say, for type 1 diabetes since insulin was introduced is eat a certain amount of carbohydrates at regular times of the day and take a certain level of insulin and stick to that sort of fixed diet. Now that we have more technology like glucose monitoring technologies, those little monitors people wear on their arm or their legs, and we also have insulin pumps, we've actually um, seen more dietary flexibility for type 1 diabetes. So rather than eating a very set regimented intake of carbohydrate, people are exploring what other options are available. And there is a subset of people with type 1 who are actually looking into low-carb diets. So even though there was at the time when I was doing this, there was very little science behind it, there was actually quite a lot of people actively doing it. And there were support groups on Facebook online of people who were helping each other with their type 1 diabetes management because no one else would. And so that really propelled me to want to study this because 
I wasn't trying to prove that low-carb diets were the best approach for people with type 1. I was trying to show that they were an option because most people were not given this option. They had to find it themselves online. So when we did the systematic review, we found nine studies Um, But only six of those studies were looking at true low-carbohydrate diets. Three of them I wouldn't classify as a low-carb diet. They were slightly less than the high-carb recommendations, but not true low-carb diets, less than 130 grams of carbs a day. And then out of the six studies we found, only two of those were randomized controlled trials. Um, We had four pre-post-intervention studies and then a few observational studies in the mix as well. So there was research out there, but there was very small sample sizes um, and pretty low quality studies or they didn't go for a very long period of time. But there were still studies and they were still showing us something. And we actually did see in those true low carb diet studies that the people with type 1 diabetes who went on a low carb diet as part of the study they reduced their HbA1c with less need for exogenous insulin. And the reason that is really important is because people with type 1 diabetes can develop insulin resistance, which is what we were just talking about. Normally, insulin resistance would be thought of as a condition that people with type 2 diabetes get. And we were traditionally taught that people with type 1, they couldn't get insulin resistance. They didn't have any metabolic issues. They didn't have obesity. They didn't have high blood pressure. Their problem was that they didn't make enough insulin. But because we're just taught, if you have type 1 diabetes, to eat a high-carb diet and just cover it with all this exogenous insulin, people are injecting these very large doses over long periods of time, and they're becoming resistant to that So when you can see that low-carbohydrate diets are an option that not only improve HbA1c but also reduce your need for insulin, that's a very attractive management strategy for a lot of people with type 1, particularly if they do have the overlapping metabolic issues like high blood pressure, obesity, and are at risk of cardiovascular disease. So from there, that's when I kind of went into my PhD and we did our own clinical trial to contribute to the evidence base. So we put 20 individuals from all over Australia who had type 1 diabetes on a low-carbohydrate diet. Our diet was what you would probably classify as a very low-carbohydrate diet, so it was 25 grams to 75 grams of carbs a day. Most people with type 1 diabetes are taught to eat over 200 grams of carbs a day. So a big shift and a big difference to what is traditionally recommended. And we did that for 12 weeks, followed up patients. We looked at their outcomes and we saw really, really positive results. It's it's a really important trial, A, because it kind of digs into this because we talked about the top, the um perception of type 2 diabetes, not only from a clinician point of view, but also from the public in terms of, you know, what options there are out there. But in terms of type 1 diabetes, there really is not a lot of discussion, as you say, as to how there are potential alternative um, management processes at all. So that was one thing that really struck me when um, we first discussed that you were studying, um, that you were publishing this trial, is that this is a really, really important um you know, point of research that needs to get out there, both to clinicians, but also to to the public. That hey, that yes, you, you know, you you're going to need to manage this process with um, insulin, but there are ways to kind of mitigate this. And and as you say, like the, the comorbidity of type two diabetes is almost you know the 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 rates are quite high, aren't they? So it it's it's a really really important point of study that I, I think should be emphasised that. Um, that you've hopefully opened up this area that people can start to see that there is a, a point of management here for them. How would you say that, you know, for people um, working with a low-carb diet, um, some of the first things that or the challenges that they've kind of come across, or for type 1 diabetes maybe in particular, it would be quite challenging for them, right, to move to a type a low-carb diet. What, what, what did you experience in the trial with this? Mm. A lot of challenges, a lot mm. of variables. 
results. I think if the trial went for longer, we would have seen much better results because for a lot of patients, it took six, seven weeks to get their head around even lowering their carbs to start with. Um, because yes, as I said, it's so ingrained into them that carbohydrates are essential. They must have a certain amount of carbohydrates with every meal. Otherwise they risk low blood sugars or hypoglycemia. What patients are not taught most of the time is that they can reduce their intake of carbs. Carbs are not an essential macronutrient, not to say that they're not important to any degree, but they're not essential. And you can just reduce your intake of insulin to match those lower carbohydrates. But that concept was very unfamiliar to these patients. And the average duration of type 1 diabetes for the patients in our study was 20 years. (laughs) So it's not like they were just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and been living with it for a few months. They'd been living with this condition for 20 years. A lot of them had been diagnosed back when we didn't even have this flexible diet advice. It was like, you must eat, you know, 50 grams of carbs at every meal. You must eat every three hours. Like it was very regimented and strict. And type 1 diabetes is such a challenging condition to manage because there are so many factors influencing your blood sugar levels. And so to have 20 people who are actually willing to change their diabetes management, even that in itself was really, you know, a big step for them to actually say, yes, okay, I'm going to make some changes after living with it for so long. And so there was a lot of challenges. I think the biggest challenge to overcome was the the insulin management. Because for people with type 1, I mean, so most people who, who go on a low-carb diet who don't have type 1 diabetes, all they have to think about is, is lowering their carbs, right? Like that's the main thing they have to think about. They don't have to think about this whole separate thing, which is insulin management. And insulin management can be very tricky because, as I said, there's so many factors influencing blood sugars. And so I think that was a big hurdle for people because they had to learn to reduce their insulin, but they also had to learn to titrate insulin according to other things. Because when you are on a high-carbohydrate diet, the amount of insulin you're injecting for those large amounts of carbohydrate is so high that you're not taught to factor in things like stress or protein or activity in terms of giving insulin because otherwise you are at risk of just giving way too much of insulin and going too low. So people are only taught to give insulin based on their carb intake. But as we know, there are so many other factors that influence your blood sugars. So for example, protein does have an impact on your blood sugars and protein does require some insulin to metabolize. So when you start lowering your intake of carbohydrate and increasing your intake of protein, you now start in most cases need to bolus insulin for that protein. And then you also might see the impact of stress or physical activity on your blood sugars because now you're taking much smaller doses of insulin. Your blood sugars are a lot more stable and you're seeing the effects of all these other things you didn't see before because your blood sugars were all over the place. And so I think that was the biggest challenge for a lot of people because again they've been living with diabetes for 20 years for some of them even longer and it was like they were learning it all new again and that was confronting very confronting um so a lot of patients really embraced it and you know they did really well and were very open to making changes but we also did have you know probably 50 percent of the participants who struggled with that And I think part of the reason they struggled is because their healthcare team, who was still overseeing them while they were in the study, they were not on board with low-carb diets either. So they didn't actually know how to support their patients throughout the study. So, you know, we tried to do a study that sort of um, integrated into their current healthcare team. But I think because there's so little knowledge out there around how to manage low carb when you how to manage type one diabetes on a low carb diet, the healthcare team wasn't super confident in that. So we ended up taking on a lot more of that management for the patient, which which was fine in the sense that we had the capacity to do that. And we were very happy to support the participants in that way. But I think, as I was saying, 
a lot of them took the full 12-week intervention period to really understand how to not only follow a low-carb diet but manage their insulin alongside. And so I think, again, if we had a longer intervention period, that would have been useful. But in any case, this is, you know, this is the case for a lot of diet studies. It's not like everybody that goes on the diet study does the diet perfectly. (laughs) You get, you know, a subset that do it really well, a subset that do it half well, and then a subset that are really struggling and don't do it very well at all. So even with that said, it was real world data. And we are very proud of that. You know, we're not trying to have these perfect results and say that everyone with type one should achieve these exact results. I think it's actually nice that we had some people that experienced some challenges and we ran our study in the middle of COVID. So we had some people coming into the study in the midst of COVID lockdowns, couldn't leave their house, couldn't go out to dinner with anyone, you know, could hardly go to the grocery store. And then we had a subset of people doing this when they'd just come out of lockdown. So they wanted to party and go out and do all these things. So we had like a, a big mix of where people were at. And that brings along challenges too, right? You know, because when we were in lockdowns, people were scared and afraid of what was going on in the environment around them. And then when we were coming out of lockdowns, people were doing so much socializing. It was very difficult to manage their type 1 diabetes when they were out and about. But this is this is real world data. And so I think, you know, we learn a lot from that. Yeah, no, and and you describe the struggles quite well because I mean, even um well, even in carbohydrate intake, I think people take a real identity on it, don't they? Like when, you know, when I talk to patients about carbohydrate intake, it's like you're you you're you you're talking about something that's very fundamental to them. And so but someone with type one diabetes, this is you know their survival and someone with this condition will have been taught about their survival and this their carbohydrate intake so it's very ingrained into them that this that that it's needed and it's just an interesting um flip of mindset i think that a lot of people need help with right that you can actually reduce your carbohydrates and it's going to be okay you're going to survive and that all there's you know there's different ways to do it so i mean i think it's such a great service that you've done to help people, especially with type 1 diabetes, because these are the people that are most affected by this and that to show them that there is hope there and there's different ways to manage that. So, I mean, I think it's it's such a, a, a very challenging thing that you've done, but also to a very important thing to open um, you know people's minds to the fact that you can reduce your carbohydrates and it's going to be okay and that there's a way, there's people to su- support you and there's ways to kind of do this without, you know, thinking that you're 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 going to kind of you know fall over and and drop off a cliff so you know thank you very much for that there's so much more to talk about um jesse you'll be speaking at the the pioneering prevention conference on february 24 which you know there's a lot more to dive into with your study Uh, so we're looking forward to that so everyone can buy tickets there but also too um they can where can people find you to book consults with you and and to learn more about your work Thank you. Yeah. Um, so pretty much everything is on our website. So it's uh, ellipsehealth.com.au. And I'm also relatively active over on Instagram. So that's Jessica Turton underscore dietitian. Jessica, thank you so much for all your time and work and into, into um, helping people, you know, familiarize themselves with low carbohydrate diets. We're, we will certainly have more conversations like this and hope you have a great day. Thanks, Stephen. It's been great to be here.